thankful for Peter and, and all the volunteers who are making that ministry possible. Uh, because, you know, let's face it, sometimes my sermons just, they're not kid-friendly. I mean, they're just, they're, they're, they go on and on. I talk about some really deep theological things. And like today, we're talking about woe upon the unjust. So, yeah. Um, but it's, it's biblical, so it's important. Um, and it's also relevant in that, you know, this world can be tremendously unjust. So I want you to think about something Maybe it's lately or in your life where you just got that deep sense in your stomach of this is not right, where you felt that sense of moral outrage. Perhaps it's this week. I know I've been feeling that a lot. Uh, I saw a program of a, you know, a child killed um, in the, one of the bombings in Ukraine, and that sense of this is not right that sense of moral outrage. Or maybe you've, uh, you know, been down to Washington, D.C. and either the Holocaust Museum or the African American Heritage Museum and, and seen the treatment of African slaves uh, and used that sense of this is not right, that sense of moral outrage. Or, or maybe it's something a little more personal where a loved one has been sexually abused or you've been abused. And that sense, that deep moral outrage that this is not right. What do we do with that? And then sometimes we have that sense. And then when the perpetrators of evil or wickedness, sometimes they seem to go free. And then that sense of moral outrage is even worse. Of like, well, now the wicked aren't even punished for their wickedness. And so it almost doubles up that sense of outrage. Will we stand before our maker? You know, the, the God of the Bible, so the, the God that, you know, Jewish people and Christians worship, uh, they answer that question with yes. We will all stand before our maker. And many religions believe that, that we will one day stand before our maker. And that idea, when, when you're experiencing a lot of injustice, that idea can be very comforting. Right? That, that people will at least have to stand before God. And it should be comforting. But it's also terrifying. And Habakkuk indeed felt both. He felt both. And that's what we're going to look at today. And for those of you who are new, maybe this is your first time here, we're going through a sermon series in the book of Habakkuk. And uh, Habakkuk, he was a prophet of Israel. He, he wrote a short book in the Old Testament, in the Minor Prophets. He wrote about 590 B.C. And the thing is, is that first, the first chapters of Habakkuk, Habakkuk actually prays to God about his own people. And he says, God, um, uh, the leaders of my own people, they're unjust. They're building their houses and their kingdoms upon the backs of others. And so he cries out to God, God, would you do something about this injustice? And then God answers him. God answers Habakkuk and says, yes, Habakkuk, I'm going to remove all of the unjust leaders of your people, but I'm going to do it in a way that you won't understand in a way that you're not going to like. Because I'm raising up the Babylonians, that fierce people. The Babylonians are going to come and uh, remove all of that injustice. And Habakkuk is stunned. 
He doesn't understand because the Babylonians are worse than the leaders of his own people. And he prays to God. He says, God, how can this be? Because, again, the Babylonians, they perpetrate injustice. And that's where last week we saw God answers Habakkuk's second complaint through a vision that, that revealed that, no, Babylon will also one day be judged. They will also one day uh, be destroyed. But my plan remains, that my people will remain, that I will remain, that even though the world seems to be falling apart, my plan is actually advancing, even if you don't understand it. And that was his answer. Well, in today's scripture, it's really a continuation of God's response to Habakkuk, and he's describing the woe that's going to come upon the king of Babylon. Now, I, I understand that woe, the woe formula, it's not very common in our culture, but it's very common in ancient cultures, and it's very common in the Bible. Basically, the woe is, when you pronounce woe upon someone, it's saying, hey, bad things are going to happen, and it usually highlights the kind of you reap what you sow kind of idea, that woe is going to come upon you, that you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. That idea, that's often how woes are pronounced. Or, uh, you know, the, the foolishness of the fool will come back upon him from, from Proverbs and whatnot. It's that idea of woe. Or, I know when I was little and I'd do foolish things and then I'd get hurt, my mom would say, that's what you get, right? Sort of the same idea, right? That's what you get. I know my mom's probably watching and going, ah. yep, see, she, was, she, was, she didn't know it, but she was prescribing the ancient woe formula. <laughs> um, but there are actually five woes in this section, Habakkuk chapter 2, um, and that's a lot of woes, uh, so I don't know if we can handle them all at once, so first I'm going I'm to treat them in, in chunks, but our, our scripture is Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 20, but we'll, we'll just cover the first three woes. Um, so starting in verse 6, shall not all these take up their taunt against him? And these means all the people that the king of Babylon has oppressed. So shall not all the people that the king has oppressed take up their taunt against him? with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, and then here's the woes, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you've plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Second woe, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Third woe, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Where are we going to stop there? So again, these woes, they go back to the beginning of, of Habakkuk chapter 2 to form God's response to Habakkuk's complaint. And that is the Babylonians will be judged, right? They will be brought to woe, these woes, destruction. 
and that just because God was using the Babylonians and he allowed their violence to continue for a time, that doesn't mean they're not without guilt. No, they still bear their own guilt. And these woes remind Habakkuk and those who are listening that that same violence and destruction that they uh, heaped upon the Israelites, but so many other nations, it's going to be come back to them. It's going to be heaped upon them. And that uh, Babylon will one day be judged, but God's people, they might suffer for a while. They might be disciplined, but they will ultimately be restored because God is eternal. His plan is eternal so that even those who are unjust, if they repent and cling to God, right, they will be restored no matter what kind of um, evils they had they had done. And, and that's the call. That's the songs we just sang. That's the, the, the idea of Christianity is that, you know, we all do wrong things and that we all have injustice, but God in his love, we can come to him and he can restore us. And that it's not just wickedness and injustice out there, but it's, it's in here too. And so that's why when Habakkuk is first addressing his people, the Israelites, that, that call that God is, is, is rendering judgment, it's not a call to um, you know, give up in despondency. It's a call to return to God. And that gives Habakkuk, that gives the Israelites hope that they have someone to cling to, that they can return to God. And that God gives this vision to Habakkuk and Israel that, yes, the Babylonians will ultimately be destroyed so that they would turn to God. And that even though from a human perspective, that judgment might seem a long time coming, and, and it was because the Babylonians still lasted for a few decades after this, but that God in his plan will prevail. And even when things on this earth still seem unjust and we don't see that, um, that everyone will ultimately stand before God. So Habakkuk and those who receive that vision, they can live by faith. That's the call here, is that uh, Habakkuk, although, uh, you know, I'm telling you this is going to happen. I'm telling you that everyone's going to stand before me. I'm telling you the Babylonians will be judged so that you can live by faith, not in your circumstances because they change, right? They change in our circumstances, our situations from day to day. But from decade to decade, they can be so, so different. And so this idea is that Habakkuk and all those who are hearing this, they can live by faith and not by what they are seeing. Because that, what we, when we covered this last week, that, that pivotal passage in Habakkuk from chapter 2, verse 4, is the righteous, the just, shall live by faith. Meaning that faith in God, faith in his plan, and not based on circumstances. And so, yes, God, he is pronouncing these woes upon Babylon and so that they understand, Habakkuk understands that the current situation will not last, that it certainly won't last uh, on the earth, but it definitely won't last for eternity because everyone stands before God. And so the first three woes, let's just look at them quick. Uh, so for, verse 6, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. When, when people heap up what is not their own, when they take things from other people violently, that should cause us moral outrage. It is wrong. So that sense of this is wrong, like, that's, that's a legitimate feeling. It's a feeling, as we'll talk about, that's based in our Creator. 
But he says, you know, woe to him who heaps up what's not his own. By oppressing so many people, the king of Babylon, not only will he have to stand before God, but it's as if he's gaining plunder for himself. Because in those days when you conquered a people, you'd take all their stuff, right? That was plunder. And it's, it might seem like, oh, he's heaping up pledges and plunder for himself. And while that's true on the short term, what he's also heaping up for himself is many nations who want payback. And they will exact that payback one day when Babylon falls. But they will also, that king of Babylon will also have to stand before God. Verse 9, another woe. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. Now, this isn't talking about Nick's nest in Holyoke, right? No, this, this is, um, you know, woe to him who sets his nest on high. In other words, somebody who, to protect himself, to protect his own interests, right, he'll set his nest on high on the backs of other people. You see, so everyone, I mean, it's, it's normal to want safety and security, but it's wrong to put other people in harm's way instead of yourself, right? Well, they'll take the, you know, almost like a human shield. I'll use people to help me. That's wrong. And it's definitely not Christ-like, right? Because Christ did the opposite. He took on punishment. He took on suffering for the benefit of others. Whereas this woe is to those who use other people for their own safety. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. This is directed to the king of Babylon, but what's interesting is in Micah chapter 3, verse 10, just a little homework for you, you can look that up, that same woe is directed at the, Israelites lead, at the Israelite leaders. It's interesting. So the, the, the idea is, yes, this, these woes are pronounced upon Babylon and its king, especially its king who are doing all these things, but it's a reminder to all people. Look, it, it's not just them. It's not just our enemies who have these woes or who are accountable to these, that whoever, whoever builds their house, their city, or their nation on injustice will need to answer for that. And that includes ourselves. That includes our leaders as well. So all of these woes, they apply to the king of Babylon, but yes, they also apply to any person or leader who commits these moral outrages. And the Israelites, they were, they were judged for their injustice with, through the Babylonians, but then the Babylonians in turn were judged by God. And so we have to be careful, right, not to have this idea of, oh, God's on our side, because we often will see the moral outrages in other people and the other side and our enemies, and miss those same moral outrages in ourselves. But these things are morally outrageous no matter who commits them. And that's why, especially on this one, right, that same woe is pronounced not just on God's people, but on the, on, not just on the Babylonians, but on God's people too. And so when we think about these woes and we try to think about a modern example, again, I, I talked about it last week, but I got it again. It's like Vladimir Putin. I mean, he is an example of a modern king of Babylon. Uh, I mean, think about it. Uh, woe to him who uses evil gain to set his nest on high, right? So what do we hear? We hear, well, NATO's encroaching. So what does Putin do? He, he takes Ukraine to set his nest on high, to give himself a buffer. But not only that, so he uses other people for his own safety. He does that to, the, to Ukraine, but he's also doing it to his own people. 
right? He wants to protect himself, so now he has passed this law that you, if, if you say anything against him, you'll get in jail for 15 years. That is a, an example of this woe where you're using other people to protect yourself, that you're letting other people, you're sending other people in harm's way so that you can protect yourself. So, you know, as Putin uses and abuses his own people in Ukraine, and as the bodies of children and women and soldiers pile up, and especially if, if you have relatives there, and so it's personal, you know, you, you, we start to feel a little bit what Habakkuk felt with the Babylonians and that injustice that, that they experienced. Because we think, yes, woe upon him, right? Just as Habakkuk was saying, yes, woe upon the king of Babylon. We say, and rightly, woe upon Putin. There's more, that's morally outrageous. But where does that sense of moral outrage come from? Have you thought about that? That sense of moral outrage, where is it from? How do we explain it? Because, yes, the people of the book, Jews and Christians, we, we feel moral outrage. But every human, every human being ever has had that sense, has uttered sometime, this is not right. This, it should not be this way. Every human being has felt that sense of moral outrage, that sense of right and wrong. Where do we get that from? And how do we explain it? How do we address it? Well, there's, I'm going on a little rabbit trail. Um, there's, there's two kind of dominant thoughts in our culture. And, and one would be the biblical idea that yes, bad things happen because the world is at odds with God, especially us humans. We are his, God's image bearers. And so we bear that moral sense that's connected to our creator and we've turned our back on God. And so we perpetuate evil. We perpetuate wickedness even more because we've been responsible for that. But that moral sense comes from a creator who is, who is good and he's right. And right or wrong is really aligned with, it comes from the creator's will. So that there is this objective moral law, kind of like the law of gravity. Now, we may disagree on the finer points of what's moral and what's not, but that sense of moral outrage, that reflects that we are created in the image of a God who knows good and knows wrong and establishes that in his person. So that's, the, that's sort of the biblical answer of, wait, why do we have this moral outrage? It's because there are things that are objectively morally outrageous. They go against our creator. But then the other sort of dominant thought is naturalism. And so what I mean by naturalism is the idea that this universe is all that there is. Okay, there's nothing supernatural. There's no, like, every, everything in the universe, every atom, that's all there is. There's no God. There's, it's just everything is contained. It's a worldview. That this world is just really random. It's a product of blind chance. And, and many people feel that this explains existence pretty well. Now, I think in the minutiae, yeah, you know, the scientific method, that's good and stuff. But naturalism as a worldview, uh, 
it can't explain moral outrage. It can't. It cannot explain moral outrage because there's no such thing as right or wrong objectively. That sense of the things should not be this way. No, they are what they are. They just happen to be. There's no should. There's no shouldn't. It's just the way it is. There's, there's, there's no created order. That's what naturalism says. And so you may feel outrage when your most precious loved ones are treated unjustly, but they're really no more significant than the dust mites in your cushions. I'm sorry, I know you're creeped out. You're like, oh, is there dust mites in these cushions? There just is. Dust mites are everywhere. I'm sorry. <laughs> but the Babylonians, their mass murder, right? That's no more wrong than an, uh, and then a male, alpha male lion killing off the, the, the males in its pack to eliminate competition. And so the, the naturalistic thinking is, listen, life is meaningless. There is no right or wrong. Your moral outrage is really just an overdeveloped sense of superstition or, or sentimentality. But there is no best there is no better or right or wrong, objectively. It's just whatever we feel. And so as secularism has risen, naturalism has risen, so has depression, so has suicide and anxiety. I mean, we enjoy the highest standard of living of all times, and yet suicide rates, depression rates are through the roof. Why? Because the one thing that we feel in the deep pit of our gut, this is right or wrong, naturalism says, oh, that's just sentimentality. It's not really wrong or right because there's no such thing. We can't live like that. We're not living like that. We are, we are reaping the, the, the woes of that worldview. And our kids, they're dying for it. This generation, they're... Again, you can't live like that. Now, it's not that Christianity doesn't have its difficulties. We have our difficulties. Like, explain, wait, if there's a good and powerful God, how does he allow these moral, why does he allow these moral outrages to happen? And Habakkuk wrestles with that. We've wrestled with that. We've talked about this in the last couple of weeks. We still have difficulty. We still have issues but the biblical worldview, at least our moral questions, at least our moral sense is acknowledged as real. That it's based in reality. It's just not just sentiment, but that there are things that speak to the objective wrongness and evil of this world. Even if we don't understand. Even if we don't understand, God, why is your justice taking so long? There's still an answer. There's still a hope that we all stand before God. There's still a hope that we'll, there will be restoration. But you know what? Naturalism, there, there is no future hope. I mean, things might get a little bit better for you right before your candle dies out, but really, all we have to look forward to is dissipation. So naturalism, you know what? Naturalism puts humanity on hospice care, right? Really, that's all naturalism can offer is hospice care. In other words, I'll make your, I'll ease your pain, maybe give you a little bit of pleasure, but really you're just going to pass into oblivion, and that's all I can offer you. That's what naturalism offers. Whereas the biblical worldview looks forward to, no, there will be a healing. There will be a removal of all moral sickness, and there will be a God that we stand before. 
Now, again, that doesn't mean it's true. I believe it's true. The Bible believes it's true. Jesus believed it was true. But all I'm saying is we can't live like that. We aren't living like that. But the biblical hope, the biblical hope is expressed in verse 14, right? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That our hope is that God's glory, his presence, anything that separates us between, uh, separates us from God, that all of that injustice, all that sin is going to be wiped away. We'll be able to experience God's glory. And a part of his glory, his, his presence is his character, who he is. And he is loving, but he's also just. So we'll stand before his justice. And again, if you love truth, if you love, um, if you love justice, then that is a wonderful hope. But again, it also can be a terrifying hope. All right, I'm, I'm out of time, so I gotta go, I gotta start going through these woes quicker. All right, the last two woes, let me just read them to you. I told you we couldn't handle all the woes all at once. Um, verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, who pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beast that, uh, that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. What, is, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation, when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. So that's not, that ends with that. The Lord is on his throne. The Lord, everyone will stand before God. But those two woes, just very quickly, the first... It's a bit difficult, the, the woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, such and such. It, it, Habakkuk kind of piles metaphors upon metaphors, so you're like, what? Wait, how do you untangle them? But the main point is woe to those who lead others astray. Right? Woe to those who lead others astray. We will have to answer to God for that. And, and so those who have leadership, they have more responsibility because they have more influence. And that's why in, um, in the Bible, oftentimes uh, God pronounces woe upon the leaders, first. Why? Well, because they influence. They cause their people to, to sin. It, it, they, they put them in situations, right, where they have to advance their evil ends. But the more that God has entrusted you with, the more you have to answer for that. Um, Jesus said, the more that's given to you, the more is required. And that's especially true for church leaders, right? Because not only are we uh, you know, given responsibility and influence, but we're given responsibility and influence in the name of Jesus Christ. And so if uh, I think about the church sex abuse scandal in the Catholic Church, but other churches as well, I think about all of the, um, you know, financial kind of uh, uh, scandals that have happened in the church. And the thing is, is that, I mean, we have to stand before God. And if we've been given more, then we are going to be judged all the more. And so, again, that idea is if you're of God's people, repent, repent, because we have to stand before God. Now, verse 19, that last woe, 
Woe to the, him who makes a wooden thing, or says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. This is talking about idolatry. This is woe to those who make false gods. Now, we might say, oh, yeah, okay, that doesn't apply to me because I've never made a little, you know, a little stone statue or wooden statue. Okay, well, but idolatry is any time that we fashion God into our image for our purposes. You see, all of these woes, all of these sins really happen because we've taken God's divine prerogatives and taken them to ourselves. Like, God kills and makes alive. God is the one who's in control of life. Well, if we take that and then uh, um, use other people instead of bless them, all of these things that go against God take God's prerogatives. Idolatry is one of those things that's worse because what we've done is God has created us in his image. Idolatry is we create God in our image. We say, we, we fashion God so that he's, we're, we're more comfortable with him. That's idolatry. And woe to us. And this happens a lot. And all of us are prone to wander in this. Just for instance, I mean, I understand that this talk, <laughs> preaching on judgment, right, it's not popular. But we happen to be in Habakkuk in that section. And I'm going to preach the word but a lot of people don't like to hear that. Well, you know, we talked about, well, God is a God of justice. Well, I like to think of God as. It doesn't matter what you like to think of God as. God is before us, above us. It doesn't matter what we think of him. He is who he is. And so we can't fashion God into our liking. That's idolatry. And woe be upon us. And when we do that, all sorts of crazy things happen. All sorts of crazy moralities happen. But we're crafting a God of our own making. Yeah, because we all want a God. We, we want a God to punish injustice, but not to punish my injustice. We, we want God to, to punish the injustice of our enemies, but show love to us. Again, we make God in our own image. But all these woes, again, all of these woes address the fact that the world is not right. The world is messed up. But in contrast to mute idols, to mortal men, and, and even if they wreak havoc on the earth, all people will answer to God. All people will stand before him. As verse 20 says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. We will all stand before God. And we will stand before him in stunned silence at his beauty, at his majesty, at his holiness, at his perfection. And again, that is reassuring. It is reassuring when there's so much injustice on the earth that God will one day make things right. But it's also terrifying. It's terrifying because we're not all that good. We perpetuate injustice ourselves. So what do we do? What do we do? The just shall live by faith. Again, we looked at that last week. The just shall live by faith. If we want to be made righteous, we run to God. We cling to Jesus. And, you know, we say that Jesus reveals God. He reveals God in a way uh, that, better, a better way than anything else. And what we see of Jesus is, yes, he reveals God's love. He does, and that's a wonderful truth, and we often focus on that. We should, 
But you know what else Jesus reveals? He reveals God's justice. But he reveals it in a way that God says, yes, all of the injustice in the world deserves my righteous wrath, but I will pour it upon myself. I will take the, the, the penalty of judgment and justice upon myself so that you and I will not need, don't need to be cast away from God, but we can enter into his kingdom fully forgiven. That's how God shows his love through Jesus, through this amazing forgiveness where all the injustice to those who call upon Jesus, all the injustice that we've ever done, like that, that's been paid for. It's been judged, but it's been judged upon Christ. And he's won victory over it. Amen. Amen. So you see, sometimes though, we don't understand that massive love of God because we have shaped God. We've, we've taken the judgment out of God, but the judgment of God shows us his love. I mean, how loving for God to take people who have turned their backs, who've committed injustice against God and others, and said, no, I'll take the penalty. Yes, justice demands, my, my just nature demands wrath, but I'm going to take that all on myself so that you can live and you can um, enjoy God forever. So yes, everyone will stand before God in judgment. But hallelujah, we can stand before God in judgment with Jesus at our side. And Jesus saying, I've paid the price for this one already. Again, that doesn't make us perfect or, or somehow, well, it just makes us forgiven. Hallelujah, it makes us forgiven. Because God, he is so just, but he's also loving, and that has been expressed in Jesus. And so, yes, standing before God, it is a it's a reassuring thing because we all have moral outrage, but, it's, it, but it doesn't have to be a terrifying thing. And if, you, if you're here and you've never said you understood this whole idea about judgment and Jesus, run to Jesus. Cling to him. Say, God, I, 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 accept, your, I accept your judgment. I accept it on Jesus. I confess that it should be judged, but I also confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he took on my sins. And so now I'm with you forever. So if you've never done that before, do that today. Do that today. And you know, as we come to this part of our service where we're observing the Lord's Supper, you know, when we observe the Lord's Supper, we, and you can take out your little cups that you hopefully received, what we're doing is that we're remembering, right? We're remembering that God's love and his judgment like, they were fulfilled in Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul, when he was describing to the church in Corinth what, what happened, he's like, you know, I, I, I told you um, what I first received my, myself, that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Eat in remembrance of me. Take and eat the bread in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice. And on the same night, Jesus took wine, he took the cup, and he said that this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. 
Again, Jesus poured out his blood on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. So take and drink the cup in remembrance of Jesus' shed blood. Lord Jesus, we've taken the bread and the cup, and Lord, we pray that this is not just a ritual we do because we do this the first week of the month, but Lord, that as we even feel the, the bread in our mouth and, and the cup, the, 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 the juice in our mouth, Lord, that we are recognizing that, Lord, these things represent your, your body broken, your blood shed for us. And Lord, we just rejoice in you that yes, you're a God of justice, but you're also a God of love. And Lord Jesus, thank you for fulfilling God's love and his justice in your body. And Lord, we pray that as we, as we go in, through our week, that the bread and the cup that represent your blood and your, and your body, Lord, it would fuel us. It would fuel us with rejoicing over you. It would comfort us and that the moral outrages of this world, Lord, they will be addressed. They have been addressed. And Lord, with that, we can, we can live by faith. Lord, we can live by faith this week. No matter what kind of tragedies or hardships come, Lord, we live by faith. And your broken body and your shed blood, we, we've done that. But now, Lord, may we live that out. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.